mission, something that you wanted to do, maybe something that you wanted to do with all your heart. You spent long hours preparing and prepping and practicing. And just before you were about to perform, someone said, you know, you aren't quite ready yet. Years ago now, God gave me a song. It was just a little worship tune that popped into my brain one day. And I decided that I would sing it and I would actually teach it to the church. You folks here at Calvary Chapel. I practiced and I practiced that song in the car, in the shower, at the office. I mean, all day long for weeks, I sang that song. And I was almost ready to teach it to Calvary Chapel Stone Mountain when I made the fatal mistake of sharing it with my wife. I just wanted Kathy to tell me how good I sounded. I'll never forget her counsel. She tenderly said, You can't be serious. You'll embarrass me and the whole family. God may have given you that song, but he never intended for you to give it to anybody else. Trust me, it was just for you. Well, I swallowed my pride and received her wise counsel, and I concluded I just wasn't quite ready. And neither were the disciples. Hey, there were 40 days between the resurrection of Jesus and his ascension into heaven. And for the disciples, those 40 days were full of unimaginable thrills. They were hanging out with the one who had conquered death. If ever they doubted Jesus was God, now in his very real presence, all their doubts vanished. They cherished every second they spent with Jesus. They hung on his every word. Their hearts burned within them when they were with him. These were 40 days the disciples hoped would never end. But they did. They did come to an end. And just before Jesus ascended back to heaven, he gave his disciples new marching orders. He commanded them, go and make disciples of all the nations. Wow, what a commission. Certainly when you think about to whom he gave it. I mean, he gave this commission to a handful of frightful men who just five weeks earlier had tucked tail and run scared. They had publicly denied and forsaken their Lord. And yet, think about it. If ever there was a time for these men to get started winning the world for Jesus, this would have been it. At least in my mind. I mean, the days spent with the risen Christ had stirred their hearts. I would have expected Jesus to seize the momentum and harness their zeal and take advantage of their excitement and thrust them headlong into the world at that very moment. But that's not what he did. Instead, Jesus does just the opposite. He tells his disciples to return home to Jerusalem and to wait. They weren't quite ready. Wait? You mean wait? You think, weren't they ready? Weren't they qualified? Actually, according to modern day missionary standards, there have never been 11 more qualified people. For one, they were educated by Jesus. Think, for three and a half years, they were homeschooled by the master teacher, Jesus Christ. They also were experienced. Remember, they had witnessed his miracles, even performed miracles themselves. Jesus had sent them out two by two to heal the sick and cast out demons. 
And they were committed men, no doubt about that. The disciples had proven their devotion. They had left behind houses and businesses and families in order to follow Jesus. And finally, we know these disciples were regenerated men. They were saved. They were born again. John 20, verse 22 tells us, Jesus breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. As the Father breathed physical life into Adam, the Lord Jesus breathed into his disciples, and they became spiritually alive with the life of God. They had believed in the risen Christ, and he gave them the Holy Spirit. Here were educated, experienced, committed, regenerated men. But there was one thing that they lacked. There was one missing entry on their spiritual resume. And it was the power of the Holy Spirit. They had received the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. But now they needed to be immersed, engulfed, baptized in the supernatural power of the Spirit. See, Jesus knew his disciples could only get so far riding the sheer rush of excitement. Enthusiasm alone would not be enough for them to face down the opposition and the persecution and the difficulties they were sure to encounter. They needed a supernatural thrust, a punch of spiritual strength. They needed the power of the Holy Spirit. See, Jesus knew that in fighting the superpowers of the flesh and the world and the devil, conventional weapons are inadequate. The disciples needed a superpowered arsenal. And thus, before moving forward, Jesus sends them back to Jerusalem to wait on the power of the Holy Spirit. I'm not sure the story's true, but I've heard it. You know, it's one of those internet tales, I suppose. But it's about NASCAR. And whenever I tell a story about NASCAR, people really love it. I don't know why. So here's a story about NASCAR. One of the greatest drivers, Donnie Allison, it was in a Daytona 500. I think it was 1985. Allison got off to a great start. And yet just two laps into the race, something went wrong. In the first turn on lap three, Allison's car stalled out. Donnie rolled off the track into the infield. And it didn't take long to discover the problem. You see, no one in Allison's crew had bothered to fill the car with gas. Donnie Allison was an experienced, seasoned, successful driver. His car was $250,000 worth of precision and preparation. But the Allison crew made an omission that short-circuited their mission. And this is what has happened to many Christians in churches today. Oh, we sport a, a slick spiritual paint job. There's Bible knowledge and experience and even commitment under the hood. But there's no gas in the tank. We'll never fulfill the Great Commission if we're guilty of the Great Omission. You need it. I need it. We all need the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, the Bible teaches us that there are three experiences that we can have with God the Holy Spirit. He is with us. Then He comes to dwell in us. But he also wants to come upon us. In John 14, verse 17, Jesus told his disciples, I will give you another helper 
that he may abide with you forever. Even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and he will be in you. See, before we become Christians, the Spirit is with us. He's the hound of heaven, he's been called. The Holy Spirit likes to sniff us out and track us down and run us up a tree. He convicts us of sin. He reveals the love of Jesus and the reality of our sin and our need for a Savior. He's with us even before we're saved. But once we come to Jesus, the Spirit comes to dwell in us. He now becomes our helper. He comforts us and corrects us and consoles us. He conveys to us God's peace and presence. But you see, there is a third experience that I can have with the Holy Spirit. It's not that I get more of the Spirit. It's just a different experience that I can have with the Holy Spirit. Jesus promised that He would come upon us. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus said, But you shall receive power. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. See, more than conviction and comfort, more than just peace and presence, the Spirit gives us power to be a witness. Let me give you an illustration. Take this cup of water that I brought with me to the podium this morning. You know, this cup of water is with me. It's alongside me, just as the Holy Spirit is with me before I become a Christian. He's convicting me. He's pointing me to Jesus. But then I can take a sip of this water. And now the water dwells in me. And likewise, when we give our lives to Jesus, the Holy Spirit, He's not just with us, but He comes to dwell in us. But there's another experience I could have with this water. I could pour it out. Pun my head. (laughs) I got you. If there had been water in that cup, I could have poured it out on my head. I could have immersed myself in that water. But that's what God wants to do with the Holy Spirit. He wants to pour out the Holy Spirit upon us and engulf us and infuse us with His power. Understand, every true Christian has the Holy Spirit residing with them and alive in them But not all Christians have His power upon their lives. Corey Ten Boone once said, It takes two batteries to energize a flashlight, and it takes two experiences to make a witness for Jesus. The first battery is regeneration, but the second battery is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Jesus taught that His cousin John had baptized or immersed His followers with water, but He would baptize His disciples, you and me, with the power of the Holy Spirit. Now let me give you a few insights on this word baptism. I think it will help us. The New Testament mentions three types of baptism. First is water baptism. We're familiar with that. It's the full immersion water baptism. The second baptism is a baptism into the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12 verse 13 says, By one Spirit we are all baptized into one body. At our conversion, the Holy Spirit initiates us and connects us to the body of Christ. You know, whenever they send in a rookie quarterback into a big NFL game and he drops back to pass and 
All of a sudden, he gets smashed by one of those behemoth defensive ends and gets buried into the ground. You know what the announcer always says? Well, today he got his initiation. He got his baptism. Isn't that what they say? Today he got his baptism. Why? He was initiated into something bigger than himself. And when we give our lives to Jesus, it's the Holy Spirit who connects us to both the Lord and to his people. But there is a third use of the term baptism in the New Testament, and that is this infusion of power. We're immersed in the power of the Holy Spirit. This experience goes by different names. Baptism, or filling, or outpouring, or coming upon, or as Jesus said here in this text, the promise of the Father, or rivers of living water, or the sealing of the Spirit. The list is long, but the experience is the same. Let there be no confusion about this infusion. The Holy Spirit wants to come on believing hearts with power. The work of the Holy Spirit in regeneration is a secret work. He comes under the surface. It happens quietly in our hearts. But oh, the filling of the Spirit. Well, that's thrilling. Waves of joy flood over our soul. Donald G. writes, when you are baptized with the Holy Spirit, you know it and need no one to acquaint you with the fact you will be soon acquainting them. On the day of Pentecost, when the Spirit of God was first poured out on the waiting disciples, it happened suddenly. Flip a page in your Bible to Acts chapter 2. Let's read the account, verses 2 through 4. We're told, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. And it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one set upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now notice, this was not an outcome that came upon the disciples gradually. No, it came suddenly. Realize the baptism of the Holy Spirit is a point-in-time experience where we're filled instantly. We're filled in a flash. We're saturated in a second. Man, we're juiced in a jiffy. He comes on us suddenly. I've heard people teach, well, the more you yield, the more he'll fill. Well, I believe God wants us to yield our lives to him, no doubt about that. But nowhere in the scripture are we told that the Spirit is poured out incrementally or that the outpouring of the Holy Spirit is a process. To the contrary, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is an event. It occurs in a moment in our lives. It becomes a sacred moment for us. We change as a result. I'll never forget the first time that I was baptized with the Holy Spirit. There were a group of kids hanging out down at the street corner near our house. One night I felt impressed to stop and to witness to them of the love of Jesus. I'd just become a Christian myself. And I fought with it. Oh, Lord, I don't want to do that. And, oh, yeah, they'll laugh. Oh, no. And I chickened out. Never forget it. I wanted to be a witness, but I went home that night feeling like a wimp. I wanted to be a bold witness for God. I knew he wanted me to speak to these people. 
I needed something outside of myself. I needed something greater than myself. I needed the power of the Holy Spirit, and I knew it. I'll never forget, I went home that night, and I laid face down on the living room floor. And in desperation, I prayed. I cried out to God for the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit. I had to have it. And I'll never forget it. Suddenly, the Holy Spirit came upon me in a way he had never had before. I began to speak in tongues. Jesus infused me with a love that overcame my fears. I rose with a new boldness that night, a new determination to stand for Jesus. And I went right back down to the street corner to witness to those kids. They weren't there. <laughs> After all that, and they weren't there. But the next night they were. And I'll never forget going back down there and sharing my faith with those kids. And a dozen kids responded. It was different. I was now filled with the Holy Spirit. And since that time, I've been filled with the Holy Spirit over and over and over again. You know, it's interesting. The same crowd that's baptized in the Spirit in Acts chapter 2 gets filled with the Spirit again in Acts chapter 4. The Spirit's baptism is a point-in-time experience, but it's not a one-time experience. It can be repeated again and again as needed. R.W. Torrey once wrote, We need to be filled again and again with the Holy Spirit. I am sometimes asked, Have you received the second blessing? Well, yes, and the third and the fourth and the fifth and a hundreds beside. And I'm looking for a new blessing today. Even if you've been filled with the Holy Spirit before, perhaps God wants to do a new work in your life this morning. Trust Him, and He'll fill you afresh. The old hymn should be our song today. Oh, for the Spirit's quickening power. Oh, for a soul-refreshing shower. Oh, for the Pentecostal power. Lord, send it now. Now, people often ask, how do I know if I've been filled with the Holy Spirit? What are the evidences of the baptism of the Holy Spirit in a person's life? Well, let's go back to the day of Pentecost. Several phenomena accompanied the initial filling of the Holy Spirit. First, there was a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. A breeze blew through the room. Now, throughout the Scripture, wind is a symbol of the Holy Spirit. It's a reminder, of his, it's a reminder to us of His sovereignty. See, just as it's impossible for us to predict the changing currents of the wind, likewise, it's impossible to predict the movements of the Holy Spirit. God's Spirit is always one step ahead of us. He's leading the way. He's calling the shots. It's never vice versa. A church effective for Jesus will be a Spirit-led church. The Holy Spirit is symbolized by the wind. Second, on Pentecost Sunday, there were forked flames of fire that had settled over the heads of the disciples. This, too, was a symbol of the Holy Spirit. Now, remember, when Moses dedicated the tabernacle, and then again, when Solomon dedicated the temple, in both cases, God sent fire down from heaven to burn up the sacrifice. The supernatural reign of fire was God's sign that he was approving of his new dwelling place. First the tabernacle, then the temple. Well, in Acts chapter 2, God is dedicating another dwelling place. Pentecost was the church's open house. And God is following his pattern by showing his approval on his new house, the church, by sending down fire from heaven. 
This time, though, he doesn't consume dead sacrifices. Rather, he empowers living sacrifices. His people. It's interesting, the wind and the fire are never repeated in the book of Acts. They seem to be one-time experiences reserved for the dedication of the new spiritual temple, the church. But not so with the third phenomenon mentioned in Acts chapter 2. Speaking in tongues. The gift of tongues was exercised numerous times throughout the book of Acts. When the Spirit came upon the believers in the upper room, God gave them the capacity to speak in languages other than their own known native tongue. You remember at the Tower of Babel, when God wanted to scatter man, He disturbed and confused the languages. But now on the day of Pentecost, when He's bringing Jew and Gentile together, In one church, what does he do? He gives them the gift of language so that they can understand one another. And in Acts chapter 2 verse 11, Luke describes the miracle as speaking, and I quote, the wonderful works of God. Apparently the gift of tongues enabled the disciples to supernaturally praise Jesus. Now sadly for some folks, this whole subject of speaking in tongues is like a rattlesnake. It's something you don't really want to touch. It's like poison ivy. Or it's like the girl in high school, the ugly girl who used to have a crush on you. You know, you want to try to avoid this gal with all, at all costs. And that's how a lot of people sort of see the gift of tongues. I grew up in a Baptist church, and I was scared to death of the gift of tongues. In fact, our pastor wouldn't touch the subject with a 10-foot pole. In looking back, though, my fear was born out of ignorance. Now here's what I want you to do this morning. I want you to open your mind. And at least, let's work on our ignorance, okay? Can we do that? What is this controversial, mysterious gift of tongues? Well, the word tongues simply means languages or dialects. The gift of tongues is the spirit-given capacity to praise God or to pray to God in a language other than your own native tongue, or any language that you might have learned. In Acts chapter 2, verse 4, when the gift of tongues was first manifested, we're told the Spirit gave them utterance. The gift of tongues wasn't a skill that they were taught. It wasn't something that they had learned. It was a phenomena caused by the Holy Spirit. Now, I've heard of misguided charismatics who will offer classes in tongue speaking. They have little techniques that they'll teach eager believers, you know, to help them speak in tongues. You know, here's how it works. Now close your eyes and kind of let your tongue start to flap in the back of your mouth. Let it kind of bounce off the roof of your mouth. And and now repeat these words after me. Owa, Tugu, Siam. Now say it again. Oh, what a goose I am. Say it again. Oh, what a goose I am. And if you think you can speak in tongues through some kind of manipulation, you are a goose. Tongues happens when the Holy Spirit enables me to praise God in a supernatural way, in an unlearned language. And it is a fulfilling experience to praise God freely and uninhibitedly. Now, of the 5,665 languages in the world today, I know just one. 
That's English if you haven't gathered yet. In fact, I know Southern English. That's what I know. And of that one language, I know, I know very little of it. Did you know there are 800,000 words in the English vocabulary, and the average person uses a mere 7,000 words? That means I probably use 3,500. And this presents a problem. For what happens? Have you ever been in an experience where you couldn't find the right word? Has that ever happened to you? That you were at a loss for words. We say that often, don't we? And, and yet, what if you really want to express what's on your heart? This produces a frustration, does it not? You see, human beings are like this funnel. The narrow neck of the funnel represents our intellect, whereas the wide base up top represents our spirit. In the spirit, we're capable of experiencing deep feelings, a wide, broad array of emotions. And yet all we sense on the spiritual level has to be channeled down through our shallow intellect and our narrow vocabulary. And it's our, lim- our limited vocabulary, our narrowness, that cuts off the flow of feelings, that bottles up the emotions, that strangles our expression. We end up pent up, and therefore we shut up. And this isn't good, not for God, because He longs for our praise and worship. He desires for a stream of praise to flow to His throne. But here's what the Holy Spirit will do. He'll fill us. He'll fill us up. And then he'll shake us up. And then he pops the cork. And he lets the bubbly of adoration and exaltation spew out. This is what happens when we're filled with the Holy Spirit and speak in tongues. You see, God bypasses our mental and our linguistic limitations by placing words in our minds that though we don't understand... We trust are the accurate expressions of our heart. And by speaking those words, we release all of that pent-up praise. It blesses God, and it's a fulfilling experience for us. One thing's for sure, the filling of the Holy Spirit results in abounding joy. As Peter put it in 1 Peter 1 verse 8, joy inexpressible and full of glory. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you're overwhelmed And you're overjoyed. You see, if a person has been floundering spiritually, it's hard for them to grasp the importance of this praise. When your spirit's dry as a bone and you feel like dust inside, it's difficult to realize why bottled up feelings would be a problem. But when you're filled to overflowing expression, praise to God becomes your top priority. Imagine getting locked jaw on your wedding day. That'd be a bummer, wouldn't it? Imagine being unable to verbalize your love at the very moment when you want to communicate it best. Or think of your favorite football team. They're playing their arch rival. You're in the stands and your mouth is taped shut. How frustrating an experience would that be? It would be torture not to be able to cheer. You'd want to rip off the tape. Well, tongues is God's way of ripping off the tape. The Holy Spirit fills you to overflowing with joy and love and power. And then He loosens your lips in order to sing God's wonderful praise. Tongues is one evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And it may be that the Lord will loosen your tongue here today. 
Another evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, not mentioned in Acts chapter 2, but spoken of elsewhere in Acts, is the gift of prophecy. In Acts 19, when the believers in Ephesus were filled with the Holy Spirit, they were given the gift of prophecy. They uttered unplanned, unscripted, yet spirit-evoked messages that conveyed spontaneously through the Holy Spirit. God gave them a message in essence. You know, know, we get into so much trouble with our mouth, don't we? With our uncontrolled tongue. It's no surprise to me that when the Holy Spirit fills us, He shows it by orchestrating our speech. In 1 Corinthians 14, we find a chapter that deals with these spiritual gifts and it contrasts the gift of tongues and the gift of prophecy. Verses 2 and 3 of 1 Corinthians 14 reads, He who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men but to God, for no one understands him. However, in the Spirit he speaks mysteries, but he who prophesies speaks edification and exhortation and comfort to men. Clearly, tongues is man speaking to God, whereas prophecy is God speaking to man. Sometimes you'll hear an utterance in tongues and Someone will give a supposed interpretation that goes something like this. Oh, my little children, come unto me. Listen to me. It's as if the tongue is God speaking. Well, it might be a word of prophecy, but it's not the interpretation of the tongue. An unknown tongue is always man praising or praying to God while prophecy is God speaking to us. Now, let me say there are also examples in the book of Acts where believers are filled with the Holy Spirit and they neither speak in tongues or prophesy. In 1 Corinthians 12, verses 29 and 30, there we're taught that there are a diversity of spiritual gifts and not all of us will receive the same gifts. Paul makes clear that this includes tongues and prophecy. This is why you can't say that the only evidence for the baptism of the Holy Spirit is the gift of tongues. Because Paul is clear that not every believer will speak in tongues. And yet, all believers need to be filled and baptized with the Holy Spirit. I believe there is one sure evidence that does show up every time a person is baptized with the Holy Spirit. And that's the love and boldness to be a witness. In Acts chapter 4, verse 31, we're told what happened just a few days after the Feast of Pentecost. It says, when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And they spoke the word of God with boldness. The floor and the rafters here today may not shake. But God does want to fill each one of us with boldness. God delights in turning wimps into witnesses. When God fills your heart with the Holy Spirit, love and joy erupt. It's like a volcano of grace. We're overwhelmed by something greater than ourselves and it causes us to forget our fears. We become oblivious to the opinions of others. The world sneers and jeers and fears no longer intimidate us. We're caught up captured and enraptured by the love of God. We're intoxicated with the Holy Spirit. You know, on the day of Pentecost, the bystanders, they all accused the disciples of being drunk. They said, you're drunk. Peter said, how can we be drunk? It's just 9 a.m. I think that's so funny. He said, come back later maybe, but 
I mean, it's just 9 a.m. They mistook joy for booze. Well, you know, it was the first service crowd. It was 9 a.m. I mean, how else could the first service crowd be so pumped up that early on a Sunday morning? There's only one explanation. It's not distilled spirits. It was the Holy Spirit. Of course, you know what wine does to you. You lose your inhibitions when you're drunk. And likewise, when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you no longer care about what people say about you or think about you or can do to you. All that matters now is pleasing and glorifying our mighty God. One day, an inebriated chap named Charlie, he was walking down the street when he bumped into his pastor. The pastor scolded him for his drunkenness. Charlie denied he'd even touched the stuff. He, he argued, oh, I'm not drunk. Why, why do you think I'm drunk? The pastor stated the obvious. He says, I know you're drunk by the way you're walking down the street. You got one foot on the curb and you got another foot in the gutter. Oh, Charlie, he looked up to heaven. He lifted up his hands and he shouted out, praise the Lord. I'm healed. I thought one leg was shorter than the other. Hey, let me say that when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you too will have one foot in the gutter and the other on the curb. Your passion for God will lift you to heaven. But you'll also have a passion for the people around you that are still on the street, even in the gutter. You'll want to see them shown God's mercy. You'll want to give mercy to those who need mercy most. Don't you want to be energized today? Don't you want to be filled and thrilled with the power of the Holy Spirit? Well, if you do, you need a little faith. Martin Lloyd-Jones summed up the experience of many Christians when he said this. They expect nothing and they get nothing and nothing happens to them. If you expect nothing, you're going to get nothing. You've got to have some faith. What are you expecting from God today? Aren't you tired of whipping out when God has called us to be witnesses? Hey, let me conclude with Luke chapter 11, verse 13. Jesus makes us a simple promise. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? If you want to be filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, then I pray this morning you'll rise up and just ask.